Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning, madam. Good morning. I understand uh, because we had a coffee earlier that you're hungover. <laughs> I can't oh, believe you're going I'm to sorry, tell everyone. I, well, I just if your quality's down, I want people to know why. Oh, I know. Apologies in advance, everyone. <laughs> I went to a fantastic dress-up party as a Roman empress hey. and drank too much. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still dressed in the same outfit, folks. I know. I know, but look, totally worth it. Totally worth it. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And Dr. Lyndon is in the studio, fully sober. Fully sober, but also a little bit shocked about how you've just thrown Dr. Lyndon under the bus. Under the bus. Totally under the bus. Totally under the bus. But uh, she's good for it. She's good. She might be angry with me later, but we'll we'll find out. Now, uh, we're going to go straight to an interview today, folks. Um, We're going to do our news segment at the end of the show because we have a number of important guests we want to get through. Um, and first up, hopefully on the line is uh, Professor Veena Sawawala from Sydney. Uh, she is the director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology at the University of New South Wales. Veena, can you hear us? I can hear you loud and clear. Oh, thanks so much for chatting to us. I mean, some people would probably recognise your voice, if not your face, from the new inventors, which you're on uh, most of the time, I believe. I indeed was, and uh, yeah, no, thank you for having me on your show, Shane. Now, uh, we came together through a mutual colleague who suggested we have a chat because you're doing some amazing work with regards to recycling work. And this is something where we, we haven't heard a lot about this, but the idea of actually digging into some of our waste and, and using it as the sort of mining source. Can you give us a bit of a rundown why we would want to go about doing things that way? Yeah, look, I mean, we all are really very conscious of the fact that, you know, we want to be able to collect our, um, you know, waste materials. But actually, we should really be calling it resources because when we realize how useful they are, our plastics and glass, our electronics, we put a fair bit of effort in, you know, collecting them, whether it's in our yellow bins or driving it to a council location and dropping off our electronics. We actually do want to see these types of materials being utilized and kept in our in our economy. And really, so therefore, if we think about the fact that materials can be brought to life, you know, over and over again in many instances, and they can actually serve a really important, um, you know, purpose, they might have useful applications, effectively what our waste materials are doing is enabling us to uh, push towards a circular economy and making circular economy more and more mainstream. But we obviously need science to make that happen. So what sort of materials can we get? Because one of the things that, for example, I, I remember even talking about this like 20 years ago was the idea of rare earth materials and how how few resources we have in that space. And yet, if you went to your local tip um, mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, dug through the rubbish, there'd be so many rare earths there, it wouldn't be funny. I mean, can we can we go after those sorts of materials? Oh, look, absolutely. And in fact, one of the uh, projects that we're doing at UNSW is very much looking at, you know, for instance, in magnets, where you've got um, rare earths like neodymium. And so you can imagine if you've got a magnet that's got iron, neodymium, boron, and and literally all of these are present, uh, for instance, in a hard drive, um, you could go after a lot of these fantastic materials and you could, in fact, start to demonstrate that there is actually a lot of value in 
the way we think about how we can do it on a small niche scale, because a lot of these materials are high value, um, you can actually establish uh, what we've developed here, micro factories that allow you to process them uh, in a distributed manner. So you can think about doing it in a completely different way. You don't have to always think about, you know, transporting all these materials to one mega sort of smelter somewhere, but you can actually think about doing it on on a scale that's uh, fit for purpose. Veena, that actually um, brings up a question that I've always been really interested in, and that's, you know, how much is it the consumer's responsibility to sort these recycling out? Obviously, there's things like RedCycle now that takes some of our soft plastics, mm-hmm. but I've seen in Japan, for example, they actually have you know, 20 different recycling bins and they divide things up. Is that something mm-hmm. that we need to be thinking about? Look, I, I think I think consumers, um, you know, what I've seen is people are more than happy to to do whatever it takes, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really about, you know, but people understanding. Well, if I put in all of this hard work, what's actually happening to it? Mm-hmm. So I think first and foremost, we need science and technology to be able to be providing that clear pathway to creating some of the valuable materials and products that we've been talking about. So I think if you then show that there is a clear supply chain that we are creating in our local economies by enabling, you know, what waste we collect and how and where does it end up, how is it being processed, I think I think consumers are going to be more than happy to play a really proactive role. And in fact, I think people are doing a fair bit of that work in terms of, you know, from what I understand in Victoria now, that there's been a ban on putting e-waste into landfill from July onwards. So I think people have to take it to designated locations. Um, so I think, again, you know, it's it's an indication that people are prepared to do it. I think it's more the question of what's going to happen then. You know, so what? I've taken it to a location um, and now what's going to happen to it? Um, is all my hard work going to deliver some benefits to our environment and to our society? Mm-hmm. So, Vina, if we've got people on board and we've got, you know, the general public on board, where is the science and the technology coming from? Where are the kind of easy wins that we think Australia can lead the way in? Mm, yeah, no, look, good question. I mean, we really know that we, we love, you know, we've been talking about um, tech devices, you know, from our phones, computers and, and laptops and so on. There's obviously a lot of valuable um, metals. Um, and in fact, we've talked about rare earths, for instance, that are available. And indeed, um, you know, good quality plastics that are there in our printers. So even if you just picked up that whole sort of category of electronic waste, with e-waste, there are so many opportunities. So the technology Technologies that we already have available in Australia, and a lot of it is funded through, you know, research that's conducted, supported by ARC. I think the next step is very much about, you know, working with local governments, state governments, and indeed enterprises, um, so that we can in fact take a lot of these scientific discoveries um, and technologies um, and and use these types of solutions to actually create value, help, um, you know, help local economies um, actually flourish. I remember talking to, uh, you know, one woman in Melbourne um, just not that long ago, and she was telling me about the social enterprise that, um, you know, she has. And for her, the idea that in a micro factory, you can take waste plastics and, you know, convert them into plastic filaments that are then fit for 3D printing Mm -hmm. is a fabulous way to show that, you know, even in a small enough affordable micro factory, you can actually create valuable products um, that you know, we can use in our society because, of course, if you think about 
manufacturing on a small scale and think about how, you know, important 3D printing is becoming to our manufacturing and work backwards from there and go, right, why don't we create our own feedstock? That's our plastic filaments from our, our e-waste plastics and create that as a, as a fantastic revenue source. Um, but equally importantly, keep all of those waste plastics out of landfill. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a win-win outcome for, you know, for enterprises, uh, for our environment, and of course, um, you know, where where governments can actually play a part in supporting a lot of these uh, new initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds it sounds wonderful. It sounds so very positive, and I have so many <laughs> questions. Uh, so these micro factories that you're talking about, how micro are we talking? I mean, I know p- many people might have seen footage of uh, recycling, sorting being done uh, offshore. You know, in quite horrible mm-hmm. conditions. Uh, but is this something where you think the the waste or the produce can be delivered and then sorted? Are we talking on a house scale, on a council scale, on a city scale? How micro is micro for these factories? Yeah, look, I mean, certainly if you were thinking about, you know, um, council and, and smaller um, cities, you can certainly imagine that in, in the space of less than 100 square metres, um, you know, you can you can set this up. Um, you can have processing capacities. You can have, you know, all these engineered modules uh, that go into putting together a microfactory. Um, so I think that's the important point that it's it's very much about doing it on a small enough scale, so that within that sort of space of fifty to hundred square meters, you can imagine, um, you know, if if your printers come in, if people are already sorting and separating, and this fair bit of front front end work that's happening, then adding on to that supply chain, if I can call it that, is these engineered modules that then transform those waste plastics um, into, you know, valuable products like filaments, which then have a value in the marketplace uh, that can actually be sold. I mean, there are schools and TAFEs and universities um, that offer design and technology courses where, where, you know, kids um, are already using 3D printers, for instance. So you've got a very big market even if you think about beginning with an education sector as, as your potential opportunity. Um, so the market portal is certainly there. Um, you know, our ability to use Australian technology um, is there. And I think, you know, as we just said, if it can be done on a small enough scale, um, it's absolutely something where I think with local councils, um, you know, along with small enterprises, I was speaking um, at a presentation I did uh, last month at uh, Hume City Council at their business events network. And I think, again, I was really inspired and impressed with everyone who turned up for that presentation because I mean, people were talking about all kinds of materials that their business was involved in. We had another guy who was you know, involved in waste textiles and um, you know, he was concerned about what's going to happen to all of the waste textiles that um, you know, his business is collecting. Mm. So I think actually um, had that. You'll find lots and lots of uh, businesses doing amazing things already. Yeah. Veena, just before we let you go, um, can you give us an idea of what percentage, if you have a feel for that, of the materials that we put into recycling waste can be recovered? Because it seems to me as though a very large portion of them have gone through a processing um, scenario that is essentially one way and uh, difficult to you know back back extract out of those the, the raw materials. H- how much of of the recycling that we do do you think is um, sort of you know in, in such a way that we can actually reuse the materials? Uh, 
Yeah, I think we, we definitely have to challenge the way we, you know, think about recycling. I mean, certainly not good enough to just sort of say, right, you know, all our yellow bin plastics and glass, if we just put it all together magically, we're going to create a whole new product out of that mixture. So I think we also have to think very carefully that in their own right, a lot of our plastics, um, you know, and, and glass are recyclable. But I think when you start to then mix it in with, for instance, yellow bin, where you might have cardboard that's then got bits of glass stuck to it, um, you're suddenly making it difficult for people who want to even recycle cardboard to actually do recycling. So I think we've got to start really at that very fundamental level and say, is there a better way in which we can actually, you know, secure these materials, work with businesses, people who might have collection systems, you know, for for waste plastics, for instance. Um, you know, let's let's put value in where each of these materials actually are really useful. I mean, something as simple as your milk bottles, for instance, that's made out of from HDPE. The technology is there for us to recycle that. So can we think about ways in which we can empower small businesses to actually collect a lot of these materials up front, work with councils, so we don't just have a one-way system. Yeah, yeah. Right now says just put everything in the yellow bin and um, it'll be right. Well, <laughs> mm. it's not right, and uh, this is why we're we're dealing with this uh, with this recycling crisis. Yeah. Well, Vina, it's been great chatting to you. Uh, thanks so much. Keep up the good work, and hopefully uh, we will get some of this stuff working on the ground uh, very very soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That was um, Professor Vina Sahawala from the University of New South Wales talking about uh, recycling technology, which is a bit of a theme for the show today because we've actually got another guest coming in in just a few moments from Deacon who are talking about a different way of doing this, which I think uh, is particularly interesting as well. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Alessandra Suti. She is from Deakin University's Institute for Frontier Materials. Ellie, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm great. And thanks so much for driving from Geelong. I know it's uh, you know, it's such an interesting drive up that long road. <laughs> it's great to go through canola fields, all in flowers. Yeah. It's a fantastic yeah. morning to do that. Well, at least there's the bypass road, which I That's it. Yeah, the bypass road. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, but we, we've got you in because it's, it's interesting today. We have a bit of a theme going in the show around recycling. And you're looking at something that's uh, a little different to our, our previous guest. And that is the whole scenario around designing products before we make them to make sure that they can be brought back into the system in some way. That's right. And that's the biggest challenge we've got on our hands to set the next generations uh, for a more sustainable future, I guess. Mm. Vina just spoke about uh, resource recovery and how much value there is in the current waste streams. Yep. Now, there's two jobs that you can see there. One, how do we deal with that waste stream and turn that in, into a resource and a primary source of um, energy or material for yep. other things. From our perspective, we, we're doing that and we work with companies to work through processes that can recover waste, but also find new pathways for that waste that yeah. are non-traditional. But more importantly, while we do that and tackle the existing waste streams, we're trying to design molecules in such a way that you can build things such as can be unbuilt. Just yeah. like in a Lego set, you might one day build a spaceship, the next day it turns into a house. Mm, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to me because many of the products that we have on the market are almost made in the opposite way to that. So, I mean, uh, long-chain polymers, for example, are very difficult to you know break down into their component molecules and bring back into a, a mode where you can reuse them. What, what sort of products are, are you focusing on? 
Look, the principles of the circular economy comes from taking materials from sustainable sources and sustainable energy to turn those materials into something useful. Yep. And so for us, there's a particular focus on taking things that come from the environment in sustainable ways and can go back into the environment in also sustainable mm -hmm. ways, even if they've had three, five, 10, 20 lives in between those two points. Right. It's a bit uh, trying to design out waste from first principles. So we'd be talking about cellulose or silk as naturally sourced materials that are can be sustainably produced mm. or recovered or other uh, similar sources mm. such as okay. seaweeds. Well, this is an area that I guess is very different to what we were speaking about before with Venus. So this is waste that occurs in, in natural processes. And I suppose people may not think about that. You generally think of your plastic bags and other single-use items, but how much waste is there in these natural things like silk or cotton or those those kinds of items? So if you take the textile industry, which is a, a fantastic point, uh, the textile industry at the start of the textile life cycle can lose up to 30 to 40% of raw materials just in, in offcuts, your T-shirt. Wow. Such um, a waste in so things. many ways, right? Mm. Water and well yeah. and, and energy creation, all those things. Mm. And that's and that's part of it. The other side of it is to actually use naturally derived materials to offset the use of plastics that at the moment we can't deal with in, in a proper and sustainable way. Yeah. Mm. So if you had something like, um, like a cotton or so forth, I mean, can you talk us through... You mentioned some of these things might have, you know, 15 or so life, life cycles, or parts of the life cycle. What what would that look like for something like cotton? I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, making a T-shirt and then maybe making another T-shirt. But then I get to the point where I'm having, I'm struggling to see how I can keep redoing that. So, what, right. what, what, I mean, talk us through one of those cycles. So, cotton, um, well, it's a good example because the cotton industry already has uh, worked through the circular economy. There's a, there's a good movement um talking about putting underwear back into a cotton field to turn back into cotton plants. And oh, wow. it's, it is a test that cotton <coughs> growers actually do to see whether their soils are biologically active or not, which is very interesting. But it only gives you a couple of Sorry, lives, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, a couple of lives, yep. Yeah. For us, we can certainly design materials made of cotton in a structure that lasts a much longer time to give you a chance to not need another T-shirt in three weeks, mm -hmm. but maybe in three or five years, and that's a prolonged lifetime, then we can powder it and turn that coloured maybe T-shirt into a pigment that allows us to recolour other things, or even in the more extreme cases when it's beyond repair, beyond reusing that way, we dissolve it back in particular solvents and spin new fibres out of that. So a lot of clothes these days are sort of made of combination textiles. So there's cotton, but they've then got lycra added or other things. So is it possible to separate those components out to reuse the cotton alone? Yes, indeed. Uh, cotton cotton polyblends are a big headache in, in mm. landfill and recycling. You can't recycle them unless you take them apart. Uh, we are currently working on a couple of technological pathways to separate the polyester and the cotton and give both a new life as a continued and maybe coloured fibre. Mm. Uh, part, part of my thinking here around this is that in the design phase, you have to do a number of things. And, you know, correct me on any of these if I'm wrong, but at the moment, these designs are optimised for minimal cost, maximum pr production. You need to design these new pathways, presumably, so that the cost is comparably minimised because some companies, frankly, just won't care about the environment. So you've got to keep the cost low, but then then make sure that there is a recycling path that somehow you introduce back into that industry. Is that, how, how do you go about doing that? 
So there's a couple of ways of doing that, and we see that mostly the consumers are now driving this change mm. towards more sustainable products and things that last longer. So it's just mm. fantastic. It's government effort is also required, but also um, the economical aspects of this need to be looked at, and that's why it's called a circular economy. It requires a holistic approach to the problem, not just a single uh, person's approach. One thing that I'd just like to stress is that if we take a textile, it doesn't need to go back into a textile market at the end of right. that first life. Yep. Uh, we've um, demonstrated that if you treat textiles in a particular way, particularly cotton, you can unbuild it down to the molecular way and then rebuild it in things that uh, resemble cartilage in your knees. And while we're getting old, it gets more and more important to find pathways to regenerate. Hold the phone. So my grubby T-shirt can become my knee? Is that, <laughs> is that what you just said? Well, in principle, yes. And and for us, it's important to demonstrate that, of course, you need pure sources in that case, but there is a lot of cotton waste at, at the source and can be cleaned and made in such a way that it can be biocompatible. But yes, in principle, our job is to demonstrate what pathways are there to make sure mm. that the materials of yesterday or today can turn into useful body parts in the future. This might be a very naive question, but I'm wondering how this actually works for you. I mean, how is this actually done at a at a is it at a molecular level where you're drilling down into the cotton molecule and I don't know, unwinding it yeah, or disconnecting yeah, it? Precisely. Um, wow. Precisely. So you can think of a cotton fiber as if it were a tree trunk. And you can start to split the tree trunk in many, many smaller segments and smaller fibrils. And then once you have the fibrils, you can put these in a particular solvent, um, in which case ionic liquids are one of these new solvents. And it does the trick. It brings molecules away from each other. And once they are away from each other, then you can play with them again as if you had, uh, again, um, a bunch of Lego building blocks that you can then reassemble as you please. So I'm sure lots of people are at home thinking what I'm thinking right now, which is what do you do with your clothes? So often, so I, if they're still wearable, I'll pass them on to friends or, you know, especially yep. kids' clothes, you give them to the Perfect. next generation. But there's obviously you get to the point where your socks have just got too many holes. Where do you actually take those? Well, that, that, is a, that is a fantastic point. Uh, there are lots of um, reuse and recycle places, and there are a few businesses in Victoria that deal with uh, end-of-life textiles as we know them, but um, our recommendation is to always repair, and if you cannot repair, try and find another use for them, and mm. rags can be washed and mm -hmm. then used mm -hmm. again in such a way that you minimise your impact um, into landfill. So I, I suspect that's the real question. Uh, some of these things in the lab, and you know, we, we, often, we often bump into this in, in the studio because we say, okay, we can do this in the lab. But right. at, at what point are we going to have a scenario where I can, instead of going to, you know, one of the local reuse bins that, you know, many many of our charities and that use, which is fantastic, but instead, you know, because I've got, you know, Dr. Lauren's grubby holy socks <laughs> and they're just not fit for anyone to wear again. But but all the fibres are still there. You know, a, a hole in the sock doesn't mean there's missing fibres. It just means there's a gap in the stitching. How That's do right. I take those and put those into an industry that says, okay, I'm going to make, you know, Dr. Linda's new knee joint. Um, <laughs> where, where is that industry at now? Because in the lab is one thing, that's great, and we're doing that, but how far are we? I mean, why doesn't Deacon just set up this new startup just and just start churning yeah. stuff through and well, making bucket loads of money? That's a good line that can take my new VC. And yeah, 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 new VC <laughs> down there at Deacon. <laughs> you, know, you, guys, you guys could make presumably, you know, bucket loads of money out of this, like other recycling firms are doing, whether they're, some of them aren't even doing recycling, they're just redistributing right. recycling. 
So uh, Professor Vina uh, just explained how they have mm. micro factories yeah, and, and yeah. we work on processes at the lab scale, but we don't stop at the lab scale because, of course, as you said, lab scale, yep, we can do all sorts of things at lab scale, but we do work at part of scale level. And for us, the key is to take risk away from industry. Industry is mm. never going to invest yeah, yeah, in something yeah. that has high risk, yep. right? So our job is actually to de-risk that industrial pathway. So we're working with government to make sure that uh, there's sensitization of the public, but also that there are incentives, for lack of better words, yep. <laughs> or, uh, for industry to go down, uh, reuse and take back cycle. There's an increase of the sharing economy, as you, you were talking about before, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Uh, we give hand-me-downs um, clothing to our friends. Well, um, it's not news that sometimes clothing manufacturers can take back their clothes and you get you get a feedback or at least they take the headache away from you and then they are responsible for the second mm. use of, of that item, either in other textile goods or knee joints. Mm. Um, it seems like the perfect kind of time to do that. You know, you and Vina both said that there's a lot of consumer push here and people are really wanting to do that. So I can Indeed. imagine you're getting to the point where the risk is seen pretty low for lots of industries and the benefits would be seen to be pretty high. Yeah, the benefits need to include uh, better financial systems uh, through government and and government incentives, I guess. Um, Yeah, the time is perfect, the time is ripe, and we're certainly ready to go. Because it'd be nice to see more of that. I mean, one of the things that was interesting, I was walking through uh, one of Melbourne's major hospitals uh, the other day for a meeting, and I noticed this, this bench and it said, you know, this bench has been made out of, you know, printer cartridges or something. And I thought, oh, my goodness, is this This seems to be just a, an example of a one-off, not a, not a cyclic sort of scenario at all. Yeah. Um, so someone took 40,000 printer cartridges and made me one bench. It's and often I, also how many benches do we need? Yeah. So many recycling <laughs> programs you know, thinking, create benches. But this, this doesn't <laughs> – this seemed to be a really def, definitive endpoint to, to those yeah. materials. And, and that didn't seem valuable to me. There's, there's a path for that. Right, yeah, because uh, yeah. that bench that got made out of printer cartridges is not made of raw materials. They sure, got, sure, but it's a small piece. It's a tiny piece, yeah. uh, but we need all these pieces of the puzzle to come together to deal with an immediate <coughs> crisis, but also yeah. with the future. So, in the future, hopefully, that bench will go back to be a print cartridge um, yeah. in the next life. So. Yeah, I mean, I want to be able to tell the story that's similar to the one where I can say my body is made of previously exploded stars, which mm. is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to say, well, mine is too. Yeah, 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 yeah yours too. Um, I'm not sure about Dr. Linda. But one day, <laughs> I, I want her. I want her knee to be made of an old pair of underwear that I once wore. I think there'd be there'd be some love in that. that Maybe we should great. ask Lyndon about. Her yeah, there's oh, an ethics question we have. To um, look, Ellie, it's it's great chatting to you about this. It's really good to hear that Deacon's doing all this because I, I know down there you have a really big materials sort of push. We and do, a lot of indeed. investment from the university in that space, which is fantastic. Yeah, but working with industry is particularly yeah. enriching because we get we get to hear the unspoken, you know, boundaries and and well, and, and it directs it helps direct your research into areas that are actually useful. I don't mean that badly, but in many in many areas of research, it doesn't leave the lab, and in this area, we need it to leave the lab pretty quickly. So. Indeed. Yeah. We have a lot of stuff ready to leave the lab and then go into other users. Yeah, thanks so much. Look, Ellie, thanks, thanks for so coming Shane. up from uh, Geelong. We really appreciate you making the trip and it's great to talk about this stuff and good to hear that Deacon's doing some good work. Thank you all. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
In the studio with us now is our third guest for today. It's Dr. Cece Zhang. She's from Risen Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Cece, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Lauren uh, has uh, dobbed you in for this one because uh, <laughs> we understand that you did very well recently and won the Melbourne University three-minute thesis competition. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It was a fantastic ex- uh, fantastic experience. I really enjoyed it. Well, this interview is going to be more like eight or ten minutes, so I'm not sure <laughs> we're going to talk about for the other five. <laughs> Should just repeat it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did in the bathroom. Now, you're working – well, First of all, I want to sort of explore an area that you're working in, which is the peripheral nerve area and the health around that. Can you tell us just what is the peripheral nerve? What are we talking about? Yeah, so we, uh, all of us, we have two nervous systems. We've got the central nervous system, which is our brain and spinal cord, and Mm -hmm. that makes all the decisions. That's sort of who we are, how we think. Uh, But then we have the peripheral nervous system, which is everywhere else in the body. So our peripheral nervous system takes signals from the brain and spinal cord to do functions, so when we move and things like that. And uh, it also takes um, sends signal to our brain and uh, spinal cord. So when we feel things and when we touch things, uh, and that's really what the peripheral nervous system does. And also it controls organ functions and mm. things like that. So, so this, this must be highly complicated because presumably I was looking one day at all the different senses we have and how the number, you know, we often think it's five, but actually I can sense temperature. I can sometimes sense uh, a whole range of other things. Presumably all of that comes through the peripheral nervous system. It does. Yeah. Everything that you feel comes from the peripheral nervous nervous system. And it is, it's a very complex system and there are a lot of layers and subtypes and various aspects to it. Mm. Now, uh, now, Dr. Lauren is, of course, an expert in eyes. So I'm presuming that there is a link here with the eye because is the eye the only place in the body where you can directly observe part of this system? Is You've that... heard my speech, haven't you? No, no, I haven't. But it seems to me, you know, it seems to me as though, you know, this is sort of this window into, into our body that we don't think about much, but we can see directly in. It is. So our eye is transparent and it's the only tissue in the body that is transparent. Um, and that makes the eye really unique. So my work is mostly in the cornea, which is the front surface of the eye, mm-hmm. which again is the only uh, tissue that's transparent. And through that tissue, we can image peripheral nerves. And so so it's the only place in the body that we can do that. Yeah. Um, and no, it's really it's really cool. Now, the nerves in the uh, – my understanding is the cornea has a ridiculous number of nerves because I remember once a, a lovely professor up near the Ionia Hospital gave me what she referred to as a corneal scrape yeah. uh, to get a sample. And it was an excruciating scenario. We, we seem to have a ridiculous number of – nerves in, in that part of the, the body, is that right? It is. So the cornea actually has the densest number of nerves in the body and also the smallest nerves in the body. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so if you're looking at these peripheral nerves, okay, as someone who has zero biological yes. background, you have to forgive me. So if you're looking at these peripheral nerves in the eye and the cornea, are you looking at these in your research to understand the rest of the peripheral nervous system or is your research specifically focused on these nerves in the eye? Are they unique? Yeah, so I use the cornea as almost like a window or a mirror to look at what happens to the rest of the body. So through the cornea, because the nerves are the smallest, it's hypothesized that they're the first to show change in other conditions. So there are many conditions that can damage your peripheral nerves. Diabetes is the most common, but other things like age and autoimmune conditions and um, trauma or even alcohol. Uh, So a lot of things can damage the nerves, but we don't know how we can 
watch the nerves or observe them or even see whether or not they're improving. So that's why the cornea is so unique is because we can actually monitor what happens in the rest of the body through the cornea. So they're like a bit of an early warning sign if you're watching yeah, the peripheral exactly. nerves. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Cece, one of the things I think I've said now maybe 10 times on this program over the last five to 10 years is why don't we have an ophthalmoscope in every waiting room of every hospital in the land just <laughs> to take take data on people's corneas and so forth for this sort of monitoring. This seems to me to be a relatively inexpensive scenario to gather what what sounds like extraordinary amounts of information about our body. Well, actually, on the other hand, it's not an ophthalmoscope that does it. Oh. So in the <laughs> eye, <laughs> so there's two types of nerves in the eye. There is um, the optic nerve, yep. which if you imagine your eye as a balloon, the optic nerve is the end of the balloon that sends information to the brain. So there's one in each eye, and that's a part of the central nervous system because it sends it's a part of the brain, really. The cornea is like the window right at the front, mm. and nerves in the cornea um, and needs to be imaged through a high-resolution confocal microscope. Oh, that's more expensive. So, yeah, as much as I love to sit in waiting rooms and image anywhere that I yeah. can find, I think it will give me a lot of data. Um, we can't do that. So we do specialised high-resolution live imaging through the front of the cornea, uh, which is a clinical skill that um, took a while to develop. And there's not the instrument's not readily available everywhere. Mm. So I think there's only a couple in Victoria. Um, yeah. yeah. So what gets... Ooh, what gets you to the front of the list then to be looked at with this super fancy uh, microscope? What are you? What are you particularly looking for? Uh, so with this microscope, we um, it's it's a live imaging device. So I get my patients to sit in front of the, uh, the microscope and we use a slight numbing drop because it is a contact procedure um, and they don't feel anything at all. They get a fixation target and I um, I manually image the front of their eye using different um, sort of different depths. And then I take all the images away and analyze them. So it, it's a bit of a couple of steps in the process. Uh, we don't just get the results straight away because of just how not cumbersome, but how many steps it takes. It's mainly used as a research tool at the moment. Um, it's not readily used um, as a clinical tool to screen for things, um, not at this stage anyway. Mm. Right, time for the optical physicist to ask a question. Yeah, I've been so, pushing Lauren yeah, out of the way. Keep Lauren in her box over there for a minute. But now, the, the cornea is um, transparent to the visible wavelengths that we see. Yes. So when you do this sort of imaging of the cornea with this microscope, what, what sort of wavelengths are you looking at? Because pre presumably you're not using the stuff that we can see that just go right through. How do you image the cornea itself? Oh, my goodness, you're really testing my optics here. <laughs> That's why they're paying me the big bucks at Triple R. <laughs> so we use a laser scanning um, microscope, okay. which means that it focuses at a depth of um, about 45 microns mm. which, from the front from the front surface of the eye. Now, I don't really know what kind, specifically how that works, um, but, yeah, it, it's using the laser to scan. And what do, you, what do you see when you image? I mean, what does the cornea look like when you take an image of it like that? Because we all think of it as just this, you know, gelatinous, I don't know, smooth bit of stuff at the front of our eye. Yeah, so the cornea is actually made out of three layers. So the middle uh, the middle layer is what we call the stroma. So it makes up most of the cornea. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of cells and proteins and stuff in there. Um, the back layer is a one-cell layer called the endothelium, um, and that pretty much controls how much fluid goes in the cornea because if you imagine we really want the eye to be able to reflect light very well, so any kind of swelling extra fluid in the cornea would just mean that you're looking through a ripple and right. sort yeah. of thing. And then the front 
front of the cornea is um, a couple of uh, layers of what we call the epithelium, and that's what protects the cornea, really. It heals really quickly. So if anyone's ever been scratched in the eye, it's usually the epithelium that's damaged. Yeah. Normally heals within 24 hours, but it's very painful yeah, because, very painful. Of the, because of the nerves, like I talked about. The nerves that we image sits packed up between the epithelium and the stroma. So it's really a one-cell layer. It's only a couple of microns um, thick, so it's very, very thin, um, but they do sit flat in that layer, mm. which is why we're able to image them on right. the glass. Right, yeah. right, nice. Very cool fact about the corneal endothelium too. It's actually got hexagonal-shaped cells, so it almost looks like a you know beehive almost. It's, wow. sort of, it's a beautiful, beautiful tissue to look at. Totally aside. <laughs> but CC, so obviously, I mean, you were saying before that looking at these corneal nerves is a way of, you know, kind of assessing the health of the other peripheral nerves. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the clinical trial that you're, you're looking at. Yeah, that. so um, we know that corne- we all know that peripheral nerves are damaged in diabetes. It is uh, one of the most common causes of peripheral nerve damage. And my PhD project, I really want to find a way to improve peripheral nerve health in the body. So I want to find something that anyone can, that we can use or take to try and prevent nerve damage in conditions like diabetes. Uh, and I, so I'm doing a clinical trial at the moment where we're assigning people with type 1 diabetes to receive six months of either uh, of omega-3 or placebo because I think that omega-3s might be able to do that. Um, it's an essential nutrient, which means that our body isn't able to produce it, so it can only come from diet and supplementation. Mm-hmm. And once we take omega-3s, the theory behind my work is that it slowly influences our body to be more anti-inflammatory and it produces some neuroprotective substances that can potentially make the nerves grow or protect them. Um, but it's never really been looked at specifically in terms of diabetes and nerves. So that's the trial that I'm working on. So I have a lot of um, participants who have type 1 diabetes and they're helping me uh, and we randomly assign them. Uh, they take the supplements. Don't know if it mm. works yet, but uh, yeah, we'll find out. And how long will the trial take? Uh, the trial is a six-month trial, okay. so everyone involved is on the supplements for six months, mm. um, and we have them progressively. So I've just finished a recruiting for the well, I'm in the process of finishing recruiting for the trial at the moment. So the trial will finish just before Easter next year. Yeah. Well, look, Cece, good luck with the trial, and be, we'd love to hear what the results are when you're finished. We'll get you back perhaps to chat about that. Um, I'm, I'm devastated to hear that an ophthalmoscope in every hospital is not going <laughs> to going to solve the world's problems. Maybe you should pitch um, the idea, though. Anyway. Oh, damn it. Um, but still, you know, you can see the see all the veins at the back uh-huh. and, you know, there's some... Anyway, we'll, we'll work on this. Um, I'm amazed Dr. Lauren hasn't corrected me. I, I was... Well, that's it. So there's definitely a lot of work in this now. So, yeah, because um, yeah. we can put cameras in, in hospitals yeah, and do, yeah. do, yeah, photos of the retinal fundus and the pictures at the back of the eye. It's the, it's the, it's the decade happen. of the, the ophthalmologist. It really is. Definitely. Um, thanks so much for coming in. Congratulations again on winning the three-minute uh, thesis contest. There's a lot of people in that contest. People don't realise just how many different rounds there are, and there aren't just ten on the day. There's probably several hundred who get get through uh, or get through various levels, and for you to get through to the final and then win is, is a huge achievement. So well done! Oh, thank you. It was quite unexpected actually to win. Wow! Well, yeah, well, you've done well, and look, you've managed now a ten minute version <laughs> on this show, which is uh, which is just as good. So good luck with the work. We'll get you back in at some stage to chat about it further. And thanks so much for coming. Thank in. you. Thanks, Shane. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We've got a few minutes left on the show, which we're very excited about because we've got some news to tell you. 
And Dr. Linden, you've got an important announcement. Oh, yes. I just had a quick, uh, exciting plug, I suppose it is. You know, I love my climate science, but mm-hmm. I also love my art. And next weekend, there's an opportunity for you to see a bit of both as part of the Melbourne Fringe and the Coburg Carnivale. I think I actually heard an advertisement for it as I was driving in this morning. Uh, there is a, I don't even know what to call it. It's part film, part immersion, part, oh my goodness, you just have to go and see it at the Coburg Library. I think it's next week, the 20th and the 21st, and there's filmmakers and artists involved, and they've got two climate scientists on as sort of expert advisors, and they're going to be there as well, so you can get your art and your science together, and it's in a library, and it's free. Cool. Ticking all the boxes boxes. for me, personally. Are Are you allowed to talk? Am I allowed to talk? No, when you're there. Oh, oh yeah. I it's think in the library. So. Shh. Oh, oh that's yeah, true. True. Oh. true. Maybe not. Well, that could be good too. <laughs> <laughs> could be good. Sounds like something worthwhile. And I news this week, I guess mainly it was a bit of a congratulations, a big congratulations to some researchers from the University of Tasmania who on Friday were awarded an Ig Nobel Prize. Well, what did they do? Their best. Oh, my goodness. So the Ig Nobel Prize, as we yeah, know yeah. these, they were set up in the 90s to award sort of stupid science, but now it's been evolved to think about science that makes you laugh and then makes you think. And so mm. it's kind of science that, you know, mm. gets a bit of attention, but it also has some useful benefits. But these scientists from the University of Tasmania won one of 10 Ig Nobel Prizes, 9,000 nominations mm. are put forward wow. and there are only 10 that are selected. And these guys won the prize for that paper that came out, I think it might have been late last year or early this year, that helped us get to the bottom and crack the code Get to the bottom. Oh, my God, that's so funny. <laughs> of cubic wombat poo. Oh, Remember that paper yes, that came out? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So it's a mystery about how wombats make cubic poo. They make it cubic so they can put it on top of rocks and kind of mark their territory. But this study done by researchers from the University of Tasmania and some researchers in the US as well have found out that it's the intestine. Wombats mm. have a long intestine, 10 metres, like half a cricket pitch length of an intestine and some of it's hard and some of it's soft. And so as opposed to the faeces being shaped on exit, it is shaped in the intestine by all these sections of the intestine that are hard versus soft and these kinds of things. So they won an Ig Nobel. How exciting is that? Very important information. Very important information. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's still having breakfast, sorry Sorry about that. that. (laughs) Do you know what really made my brain boggle then too as well is the whole idea of them putting it on a rock. Like wombats are not the most agile of creatures. So the idea of them climbing up onto a rock is, is quite... Or yeah, hand, handling true. their own feces after they, they've yeah. done it. <laughs> they don't oh, move let me just pick up poo. my own poo and put it on a rock. They exactly. don't move their own the poo, Dr. Shane. <laughs> They're just waddling along. They get to... It's not like a pointy rock. They get to a comfy-looking rock, I would I think, imagine. I think the phrase that's going to stick with me for most of the day is shaped upon exit. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's not something I, I've thought about much, but shaped upon exit, huh? That was when I was talking about this with my partner last night. He said, oh, well, obviously, they just shape it on the way out, right? And I said, no, that's not how it works. Shaped in inside. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Congratulations to those researchers. Oh, yeah, that's great work. It's good to see uh, Tasmania getting a Guernsey for one of these Ig Nobels. Pity it doesn't come for a million dollars worth of prize money. Yeah, no, what you get is I think it's like 10... 10 trillion Zimbabwe dollars or something, which is very obsolete. It's quite, quite yeah. an obscure competition, but it's lots of fun. Yeah, and look, I think it, it, it does shine the light. It used to shine the light on people just being ridiculously stupid and the wrong things being funding, but it has evolved uh, yeah. quite a lot. And mm. I think it's uh, it's fun to have something like that. Get away from the seriousness of the Absolutely. Nobels. Mm. And I, but I mean, it's so you get the prize awarded to you by a Nobel laureate, so oh, they give cool. the awards. Yeah. 
people who have won Nobel Prizes give the awards yeah. and it's uh, the award ceremonies at Harvard and then they have a public lecture at MIT. Nice. But get this, the lectures can only go for a minute and then they've got an <laughs> eight-year-old girl on the stage who says, please stop, I'm bored. <laughs> and the next person starts. So it's That's a beautiful great. science communication activity and also kind of some of these papers that were awarded prizes were published in Nature or Science yeah, and quite yeah, high, yeah. high-ranking mm. journals. Yeah, and it doesn't have to hang around for 50 years before you get recognised. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You don't have to die uh, to yeah. get one. Well, you can't be dead. That's the thing. You, you know one of the things about Nobels I've always had issue with is you can't be dead when mm. it's given to you, which I think for families and, and so forth mm-hmm. is really terrible. If you did something yeah. amazing yeah. and you just happened to fall off your, your rocker a week before the Nobel yeah. ceremony, mm. oh, I'm sorry, bad luck. Yeah. The other thing is they can't give it out to more than three people at a time. Yeah. So if you have a team of four, oh, tough shit. Yeah. You, really? You know, which yeah, is crazy in science It's really these days. nuts in science these days. Because there's always teams. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. really it hasn't evolved mm. with science. Do you think it will? I look, it doesn't seem to show any indication that they are going to change that. Mm. And um, I mean, for example, it's interesting with um, Peter Higgs who won it for mm. the Higgs boson theory. But you know, the five thousand people that were involved in yeah. actually discovering it, uh, oh, bad luck. No, hang on, the. Oh, that was the Nobel Peace Prize because the yeah, IPCC yeah, yeah, won the Intergovernmental yeah, yeah. Panel on Climate Change. It's different. There's yeah. a Nobel. So anyway, it's uh, look, it's one of those things. But um, yeah. What do you got there, Dr. Lowe? Uh, very quickly. Um, so there was some good news this week about uh, liver transplants. So it, it's always been a real issue in terms of timing. So if you know someone donates their liver, which is one of the most generous things a person can do, um, historically they've only had nine hours to actually get that liver to the patient that needs mm, it. So okay. out out and in. in. Exactly. And so because the trick is that you've got to obviously cool it down to protect the cells, but you can't go too cold because then it freezes. Right. And, you know, cells, cells explode. don't do well when they mm. freeze. So it's literally the same as putting a, you know, a sealed container of water in a glass jar into the freezer. It you will, shouldn't do that? It, we should not do that. Beer bottles, not good in the freezer. Learning so much today. <laughs> I, know, I know, important <laughs> things. Um, but this new study has been really important because what they've been able to do is add some different ingredients to the solution that they put the organ in to actually be able to reduce the temperature so you can keep the organs now for about 27 hours. Is that called antifreeze? It is, actually is. <laughs> it is. So they basically wow. so they use antifreeze. And they knew that antifreeze worked with rat organs, right. but they'd never been able to do it with humans. So they've now added some extra components in. So they've added something called trehalose uh, and then glycerol as well. Mm. And then also used a different way of actually pumping the solution through the organs. So it's kind of, you know, extra ingredients in the solution, extra ways of getting the solution into the organs. And, you know, it buys them up to three times as long wow. to get that and organ. that's a lot of time. It's that's amazing. a lot of time. Yeah. And we should say as a public service announcement, don't add antifreeze to your beer and then yeah, put no. it in the fridge because <laughs> it's highly toxic, which is one of the reasons why this hasn't been done, I think, in the past is because many antifreeze materials <laughs> are saying, extremely like, toxic yeah. materials. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And that's the really exciting thing with this particular study is they've shown that the, the organ's still fine at the end. So, you know, they're saying that after 27 hours, they can still then implant that into someone. And, and so do you think this is the first organ of many that they'll be able to extend the transfer time for? That's what they're saying. Exactly, exactly. Because you think about it, I mean, something, you know, when someone's going to donate an organ, you don't often get very much notice about that. So you then have to get the person that's going to receive it into hospital. You've got them prepped. You could get the doctors there. Mm. That's a huge call in nine hours. Well, not to mention the transport scenario. Exactly. Depending on where you're getting it from and it going to, there could be a few yep. hours in, in there as well. Exactly. And not, nine hours, I think we have to be careful here to say, like, it's not nine and a quarter hours. No. It's like, uh, you know... At eight hours, things aren't great. Yes, exactly. So it's not like, oh, I'm good, I'm eight hours and 45 minutes, good to go. Yeah, yeah, it's no, like, no, no, exactly. As you approach nine hours, things are starting to get 
bit dicey. Exactly, so. exactly. So no really good news. And, you know, obviously that's great news for people that are, are waiting for these organs. Mm, excellent stuff. Well, I think um, we're almost out of time. So I, I was going to mention some really uh, unique stuff that's coming out. I'll quickly say at MIT, they're using a new brain imaging technique to measure people's pain. Oh, um, which is this. just fascinating yeah. because I don't have time to talk about it in detail, but suffice it to say for people who can't articulate that they're in pain or mm-hmm. children who can't verbalize it well or people who are unconscious are in pain, the ability to actually externally do a measure that says this is how much pain that person but in. pain so, is so subjective. That's crazy to yeah, me. It is, it is to a degree, but there are certain bounds that you could begin with say, okay, this person's in extreme pain. Mm. Now, how well they deal with that is, is subjective, but the amount of nerve firings and so forth, you could say, okay, I'm going to dull that down chemically and that, that yep. could then be measured. So this is this is early work, but it's a new type of imaging they're doing of the, the frontal lobes of the brain, which is just fascinating. So mm. anyway, Great stuff. we are out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Edith. Thank you, Dr. Linden. Thank you as always, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Lauren. Thank you. Managed to get all the L's. Catch me out. When Laura's in here, I'm totally stuffed. With, <laughs> oh, there's too many L's. You have to change your name. I know. We're going to change your name, Lyndon, to something else. We'll work it out before next week. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.